Well, it's my great honor to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word this morning to Exodus chapter 35. We'll be looking at 35 and 36 in Exodus together this morning. And this is our 23rd sermon in our series through the book of Exodus. We are drawing toward the end of the book, and I am so thankful to be able to preach this portion of God's Word to you this morning. Now, we're going to uh, look at some of these verses, but I'm going to read to start with Exodus chapter 36, 4 through 7, and then pray for God's mercy as we study together this morning. I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's perfect and precious Word. Stand knowing that when we hear God's Word, we hear God. I'm actually going to begin in chapter 36 of Exodus, verse 3. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Oh, let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this portion of your word which so powerfully communicates to us your commitment to have your presence among your people. And Lord, that so powerfully communicates to us that your presence transforms us. That your grace is the only thing that can save us, sustain us, and ultimately deliver us. And Lord, help us know today better than we have ever known by the work of Your Spirit that Your grace is indeed sufficient. In Christ's name we pray, Amen. You may be seated. Judy and I were newly married. We didn't have hardly any furniture. In fact, when I married Judy, the only furniture that I had in my apartment was a lawn chair that I sat in a what you might call a home entertainment center, but that might be a stretch because when we pulled the TV out, it fell over and collapsed, and a bed. So we were going about the business of acquiring some furniture, and we, we bought this armoire, and we were excited about it, and we got home. And Judy said, okay, uh, get the tools. And I said, I don't own any tools. And so what I got was the butter knife. And through under Judy's guidance and instruction, we put an armoire together that still sits in our house today with a butter knife. And for me, things have only gone downhill from there. I have often thought if our family was on a reality show, it would be me trying to put stuff together, everybody snickering about it, and ultimately Judy coming for the rescue. 
I mean, uh, Judy's like, how do you read and understand these complex things? And you have a PhD, but you look at these instructions and I'm like, I mean, I've never put anything together where there wasn't too many screws or too few screws left at the end, ever. And Judy's like, oh, I get to put something together. That's weird to me. You know, in our text, we're talking today about the construction of the tabernacle, the tabernacle complex, and it talks about skilled craftsmen. That would refer to Judy, and I would be the person bringing the skilled craftsmen some stuff. You see, our text has been building toward this moment. In our text this morning, they're beginning the construction of the tabernacle, and it says that they are doing it just as the Lord commanded. From chapter 36 through the end of the book, or chapter 35 through the end of the book, it tells us this 18 times. There is a lot of emphasis put on what is going on here in the construction of the tabernacle is happening just as the Lord commanded. In fact, much that we have in chapters 35 through 40 is a reiteration of what was said when God told Moses and gave instructions about the tabernacle and what it should be about. Uh, Now, God started with the most holy place and explained out in giving these instructions, and now we have the actual construction of the tabernacle beginning. And what the construction does, it starts in the most logical place, but, but, but the wording is almost exactly the same throughout to emphasize that this is happening just as the Lord commanded. Let me give you one example. Exodus 25, 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Exodus thirty-seven seventeen. the construction of it. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and the flowers were of one piece with it. The instruction and the construction match exactly as the Lord commanded. Now, you might say, why all of this repetition and reiteration? At this point, why not just skip over this? And I'll remind you what I've been trying to remind us of throughout the study and reminding myself is that when the Bible slows down, when the Bible gives a great deal of detail, that is to matter to us. We must remember that what we have here in the actual construction of the tabernacle is the high point of the entire story. All of this has been building to this moment. This guy, Moses, was delivered from a death sentence, and and irony of all ironies, he ends up being saved by Pharaoh's daughter and being raised in Pharaoh's house, though he is an Israelite. And he ends up being the one that God comes to in a burning bush. One man, and God says he's going to come up against Pharaoh and demand that the Israelites are led out of slavery in Egypt. One man that God speaks to. 
And yet, ultimately, this man becomes a nation, and he does lead the people out. And, and this one who tried to reject the calling ultimately stands there and says, Stand still before this water as the Egyptian army is closing in and see the salvation of the Lord. And they do. They cross over. The Egyptian army is drowned. They sing, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is in His name. God summons His people to a mountain. And He, he, he talks about how He is going to... Uh, uh, how he's going to maintain relationship with them. And he gives them the, the commandments and the way to, to build the tabernacle, the place that would represent his dwelling among the people. I'm going to move in among you. I'm going to be there dwelling among you, and I'm going to identify with you as my people. And ultimately, this people, when Moses is gone a little bit of time, they build a golden calf and say, well, he's gone, let's, let's worship this. And, and, and Moses, the mediator that God had raised up, intercedes for the people. And God gives his grace. And the covenant is renewed. And here we are. And the tabernacle, the place that represents the presence of God, the God of this covenant, the God of this grace, the God that redeemed from slavery in Egypt, this God is there among a people. You see, all of this ultimately is about God's presence and God's presence to redeem. In eternity, we will celebrate God's presence. We will sing of His greatness and His glory, and we will sing eternally that He indeed has redeemed. He has fully and finally delivered His people. The reason there is so much detail here is because this is important. God's presence is what matters most. This is the high point in the telling of this story. But then there's also a really practical reason. Moses was gone 40 days and this people melted down things that were to build the tabernacle and made a golden calf. Uh, they needed to be reminded. If any people ever needed to be reminded of anything, it's this people. We often need to be reminded. This morning what we're going to do is not go, go back and explain all of the aspects and dynamics of uh, the tabernacle complex and the holy of holies and the most holy we're, we're not going to do all that if you want that you can go back to exodus 25 through 31 and listen to those sermons but what we are going to do is to think about with what's here what is god showing us and what god is showing us is his generosity his incredible overflowing abundant generosity. As we pick up our text this morning, Moses had just interceded on behalf of the people. God had raised up Moses to be a mediator, and Moses had gone to the Lord on behalf of the people, and he had cried out for mercy for them, and the Lord was gracious. The covenant was renewed, and Moses had a shining face because the glory of the Lord was upon him. And now he is coming down and he is telling the people what the Lord, what Yahweh, what the great I Am has told him to tell them. And one of the things that probably surprises most of us is where he starts. 
He starts with his gift of rest in Exodus 35, verses 1 through 3. You see, the instructions about the tabernacle that the Lord had originally given Moses ended with a call to honor the Sabbath. You can read about that in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. But now that the, 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 the tabernacle is actually being constructed, it begins with a call to honor the Sabbath. Look with me beginning in verse 1. Moses assembled the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Verse 2. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord, devoted to the Lord. This day is to be different. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all of your dwelling places, meaning in the camp area, on the Sabbath day. Fire was essential to work in this context and essential to getting energy. And so symbolically, fire is the representation that this is not to be a day of work. It is to be a day of rest. A day of rest in the Lord. It's to reflect God's pattern in the created order, which is so God's people remember God. One of the great disciplines of the life of the believer is remembering. One of the great gifts that God has given is the one in seventh, seven day of rest. Now, the Sabbath here, the, the relationship here to Israel as a people whom God is directly ruling through and, and the, the tabernacle and all of that, uh, this mediates to us in a different way, but God has still built this one in seven rhythm of our lives where we, with a greater understanding than anybody has ever had, come celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ together in this one in seven this solemn rest, this rest that we so desperately need. Why does he start here? Well, that's easy. Because this is what it's all about. God is delivering a people ultimately that will worship him and rest in him. That's what God is doing. So when we think about the Sabbath, when we think about the rest that God has promised, there is a sense in which that is fulfilled in Christ. For Christ says to us, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We know rest here and now in the most profound of ways in Christ, and yet we still live in a world of sin and rebellion and a reminder that the coming rest, where there's not even the presence of sin in a new heavens and new earth is coming, we gather and remember the reality of resurrection. We remember that the rest that we know in Christ is only going to get better. We gather for worship and rest. I love Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, that is, the awareness of the trespass, our sins. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
Exodus puts it this way in Exodus 34, 6, that God comes in abounding and steadfast love. Abounding and covenant love. The, the word hesed. We, we see a people who have been delivered and they have seen themselves the power of God in mighty and incredible ways. And within 40 days, they make a calf to worship. And yet grace abounds all the more as God accepts the cries of the mediator on their behalf. And here we are, and his dwelling place is being built among the people. And you know, I, I know the way people are. They probably just prefer to get busy and get to work. They probably would not start with this idea of the rest that God provides. We like to distract ourselves. But if the rest is ultimately the reason, then the things that we do on the way to eternal rest can't forsake the rest. We are to worship the true God and rest in Him. We are made for just such a reality. And by the way, Our ability to rest in Christ, our ability to rest in the gospel, is what keeps us from making golden calves. And it's what keeps us from making idols out of all kinds of other things. The discipline of coming together and remembering. And it's what allows us to remember You know, if we were to sum up what we gather here to remember week by week, it's not that complicated. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And He is our only hope. And when it comes to eternity, all that we have, He has given us. When it comes to our hope, there is not one thing that we offer Him. We have not earned our rest. What we have is what we have been given. And that leads to the second thing in this text. Not only His gift of rest, but His gift of giving. Look with me, beginning in verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Do you see two things that are working parallel there? Bring a contribution. Bring it whoever is of generous heart, and when you give it, it is rightly described not as your contribution, but as the Lord's contribution. That's an extremely important point. That point is the overarching reality of this whole section. Verse 6, Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. 
By the way, this is a repetition of Exodus 25, 3 through 7. Now, here's what I want you to think about. They are called to give these things for the building of the tabernacle. Well, where did they get the stuff that they have to give? They were slaves. They didn't have anything. They were escaping. And yet God had promised them before He delivered them that when they were leaving, they would plunder the Egyptians and the Egyptians would give them goods on the way out. And so the goods that they have, God gave them by delivering them through the Egyptians, just like Moses was saved by Pharaoh's house. The tabernacle is to be built by the Egyptians and the wealth of the Egyptians. That's what they have. That's what they melted down to make a golden calf. And yet God is still saying, what you still have, bring for this contribution. If there's ever a people that knows, because they've been demonstrated in this very visual way, that all that they have to give is what the Lord has given them, it's this people. Do you see that? I mean, they're not saying, well, I mean, it's not necessarily the Lord's. Uh, you know, I earned this master's degree, or, or I did this, and I did this by uh, rolling up my shirt sleeves and pants legs and getting... They don't, they don't have any of those things that we try to say, to say, well, yeah, it's kind of the Lord, but it's kind of me. Remember the pictorial way that Exodus works. It gives you this visual image. If we could see them in slavery... And they're walking out, all that they have, literally, God has put in their hands through what He is doing. God has placed it to them, and now the, contra- the call to contribution to give to the building of the tabernacle is just simply that they are to give out of what they have been given. Because they have nothing that God has not given them. And you say, yeah! And it's just as true for you and I. We can distract ourselves with all that we have done. But at the end of the day, we have nothing that can bring hope, satisfaction, contentment, salvation, deliverance that we have not been given. I love the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. It's glorious. All of our problems are bound up when we go beyond what is written. We uh, constantly, we're, we're creating this narrative, this story, and oh yeah, we know why that person did this, and that person did this, and we know what that person thinks of us, and we act as though these things are reality. Now, well, I'm better than them because of this, or man, I'm depressed because I feel inferior to them because of this. That is all beyond what is written. Let me give you what is written. Here's what he says in verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you've not been given? Stop going on beyond what is written. This is it. 
when you think about making contribution, the person who doesn't have much, that contribution is every bit as valuable as the person who has much. Because both are simply giving out of what the Lord has given. And if you miss that, you miss everything that matters. Let me tell you two of our besetting sins. Taking credit for what the Lord has provided us. Or accusing God of not providing for us. Those are our two besetting sins sins. God's providential circumstance works in our life to bring us to such a place and something happens and and we tend to in our hearts want to say, look at what my hands have done. But there's also the problem. God blesses us mightily. But all we remember is what we think we should have that we don't have. So affluent Americans look in a closet stuffed with clothes and say, I don't have anything to wear. They look in a refrigerator packed with food and say, I don't have anything to eat. Those are two but simple examples of the way this discontentment can churn in our hearts. And why do we think that that way? Because we don't understand the weight of our need of grace. We don't remember it. You see, the idea here is that this people had to rest before they do this work of giving because they have to remember that all that they have, God has given. Also notice the motive for giving. Now, now I want to make this very clear. Believers aren't the only people that are givers. Believers aren't the only people that are generous givers. The distinguishing mark between unbelievers and believers is not that believers are givers and unbelievers are not. The distinguishing mark is the motivation for giving. That's the distinguishing mark. Notice it in this section. Chapter 35, verse 5. Whoever has a generous heart... Chapter 35, 21, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him. Chapter 35, verse 22, all who are of a willing heart. Chapter 35, 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them. Chapter 35, verse 29, whose hearts moved them. You see, the distinguishing mark is the thankfulness to be able to give. The generosity that comes from a heart that knows I only give because I've been given to. It's a joy to give. It's not a burden to give. It is natural to give, not unnatural to give. And by the way, someone whose heart has been stirred, who has a willing heart in general, is the type of person who gives. And not begrudgingly, but person who gives abundantly. This is the distinguishing mark in the giving. Somebody may give to build a hospital, and that's a great thing for our culture. And they may give it just so their name will be on the side of it to make a name for themselves. Now, that is good for our community, and I hope people keep doing that. And yet, at the end of the day, they need Christ. And the ultimate thing that all of us need is to do what we do for the glory of God. 
the distinguishing mark in giving is I give because I have been given to, and that's the reason I am glad to give. If you were to give one of your kids $10 and say, here, here's $10, do with it whatever you want. And you had some, another kid walk by and I say, you know, I, I really got this situation and I need a dollar. Uh, and your kid said, Psh, I'm not giving you my money. You'd go, whoa, 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 your money that was given to you, why wouldn't you be? Right, this is a teaching opportunity. Are you, are you serious? You're acting like you earned that? You're acting like you deserve that? You see, that's what's going on here. By the way, does this willing heart language about giving remind you of anything? This is parallel to what we find in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is the longest section in the New Testament about giving. First of all, he starts talking about the churches in Macedonia, and these churches were marked, he says, by extreme poverty. They had almost nothing. But it tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is the relief of others. And in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's the pattern. That's why rest is so important. And then it says down in verse 8 of Second Corinthians 8, I say this not as a command, he's calling the Corinthians to be a part of this offering, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. You're benefited by giving. Who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire it. So now finish doing it as well. And then in chapter 9, that famous section in 7, 8, and 8, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know, there's some people that every time giving comes up anywhere in the Bible, it's like, well, are you talking about tithes? Are you talking about offerings? And are you talking about 10% is 10% for today? And in the Old Testament, it seems that 10% was for several things. So is it this much? Is it... Uh, why often do we try to complicate things? Because we're looking for a loophole not to do certain things. I see this in my kids all the time, and if I'm honest, I see it in me. When we are reluctant to do something, all of a sudden it gets really complicated. Let me tell you what's not complicated each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's not complicated at all. When he says here in Exodus 35, a generous heart, a stirred heart, a willing heart, a heart that's been moved, that's not complicated at all. People who have been moved by the presence of God and the grace of God, the, the covenantal favor of God, are people whom giving makes sense to. 
And by the way, Exodus 36 says these folks were a lot like the Macedonian Christians. Look with me in uh, chapter 36, beginning in verse 3. And they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the, on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing them, him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command and word that was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. Moses says, okay, I forbid you giving any more right now because you've given so much. That's a really good problem to have. It says, so the people were restrained. The, the language here is strong. They were restrained from bringing more for the material they they had was sufficient to do all the work and more it's just like the macedonians hearts that are stirred who want to be a part of this why because they rest in the gospel and they know that that all that they have to give is what they have already been given and then notice one more important theme the gift of work do you see how this fits together you rest in him you give from what he has given you and then you work and the work is not apart from him the work is a gift he says i let you in on my work you people are going to build my dwelling place is that a burden or a blessing can God accomplish His work without people? You better believe it. Could God have forgiven people without the intercession of Moses? Well, yeah, but that's not the way He ordained it to be. God lets Moses in on His work. And God lets the people in on His work. Not only in the intercession of Moses and the renewal of the covenant, but in this part of the work, the building of the tabernacle. I want you to notice this with me. First of all, we've seen so clearly, everybody is involved in the giving. That's the way God's people are. Everybody gives. It says men give, women give, all kinds of people give. Everybody gives We bring it together. Some give more, some give less, but everybody sacrifices. And then in verse 35, verse 10, let every skilled craftsman among you come. 35.22, so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. Verse 35.26, all of the women. Verse 35.29, all of the men and women. Verse 25.30, Bezalel, this spirit-filled builder, the one that God commissioned to be the, the, the lead contractor on this sanctuary, this, this tabernacle building project. In verse, chapter 35, verse 30, his assistant, Oaliab. In chapter 36, verse 1, every craftsman. In chapter 36, verse 8, all of the craftsmen. So get the picture. Everybody brings contributions. Everybody is involved in the work as much as though they have the ability to do it. God has supernaturally empowered one to lead in the work there are men working there are women working and everybody in between what a beautiful picture it is now here's what i think 
I think that if you had taken this group of people and you would have showed a picture of what the, the tabernacle would be, and you'd have brought somebody in from the outside, and they would have looked and evaluated this group of people, and you would have asked them, can this group of people build that for God? This person would have laughed. That's the way it works. That's the reason why in the New Testament, uh, God calls the church uh, a bunch of clay pots. Uh, that's why he said God isn't at the work in the world finding the noble and the mighty but God is accomplishing His work through people that other people would look by and say, what does that person have to offer? And God builds these churches together where the body comes together and is formed, and people are like, that doesn't look like a powerful group, and yet in reality it's the most powerful force in the cosmos, and the gates of hell itself cannot prevail against it. That's the way God works. And so this people, empowered by God, graced by God to be a part of building this glorious tabernacle and building the dwelling place of God, can do so by grace. They are a part of building the kingdom. You see, the presence of God, He is the King of kings on earth, represents God's kingdom that He's ultimately establishing after the fall. These people are involved in that work. What a privilege! And the same is true today. But so often we will not believe it. So often we are such hand-wringing naysayers. And we are so focused on our own individuality that we start evaluating everything and think somehow, some way, and come up with some narrative by which we have been slighted. Slighted to be a part of God's work. Slighted to be a part of building the kingdom. Slighted to pour your life into this imperfect body that God has raised up and yet that is going to impact eternity. We are impacting eternity. That's true of all faithful churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a privilege. All of us are needed. Pastor asked one time, you know, what if the commitment level of the church as a whole, reflected your individual commitment level to the work. Well, I'm not that important. Don't argue with God. That's not the way God says it works. Not here, in this community of Israel, not in later redemptive history, where this community gives way to the church. That is not the way God says it works. If you say that your contribution is unimportant, you are arguing with no one less than God Himself. Deuteronomy 8 will give a warning. The warning in Deuteronomy 8 is, is be careful that when God has delivered you from Egypt, God has preserved you, God has fed you, God has quenched your thirst, God has brought you through all of these things, into the promised land, and you build there, he says, beware that you do not say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have given me this. That's the warning. It's a warning for all of us at all times. Beware that you don't say my power and my might have given me this. What do you have 
that you have not been given. This is one of the reasons people often think we're crazy, but Judy and I teach the kids in our home that they own nothing. Nothing. You, nothing, you possess nothing. You're not an owner of anything. You're stewards of a lot of stuff. You're wearing my socks, my shorts. You're playing with my toys. You're wearing my shirts. You're, it's all, Grandma sends you something. Don't you dare say mine. You've got no place to house it. It's going in my house. It's mine. And so don't ever say mine. Don't ever act as though you're an owner of what you're a steward of. And if you act like that, I will take it and throw my toy away, which I've done numerous times. Now, what are we doing here? We're trying to teach them a way of seeing the world. Why, this is why five girls in our house grew up in one bedroom, three boys in the other bedroom. You can't say mine. We, gotta, we just got to share. We don't even have enough stuff. Right? Here's one bathroom, eight kids. Have at it and be happy about it. Okay? Better be thankful you have one. See, we're doing that because we want them to see the world in a way that doesn't say mine. Ultimately, we want to point them to God and say that mom and dad, this is not our house and our car and our stuff. We are stewards of this stuff. This stuff has to be surrendered for the work of the kingdom. Otherwise, we've made an idol of it and we're rebels against God. That's what we're going for. That's true of all of us. Let me ask you today, did you create the world? Are you responsible for this? Did you give yourself life? Do you give yourself breath? Is this what you have done? Are you the one that keeps your body working? Have you made it thus far merely by your cunning, your smarts, and your skill? Is that your testimony? Do you hold the planets in proper alignment so the universe doesn't collapse? Is this what you have done? You know the answer. No. There was a man in our church, he's passed away now, and I miss him greatly, named Mitch Kirshner. And he was living a wayward life, and something happened to him, and that something was that his first child was born. And his testimony of faith in Christ is that he looked at that child, and he asked himself the question, who... Who can I thank for this? He knew he couldn't thank himself or just his wife or anybody around him. Look at this. This amazing human. Who can I thank for this? And there was only one answer. God. The creator. The maker. The one who gives life. But you see, it's not just the birth of a child that ought to birth in us that question and lead us to the right answer. Who do I have to thank for this? Ought to be the constant refrain of your life. And the answer is never myself. The answer is the God of all grace who in his immense generosity has blessed a people who do not deserve it 
and he has made covenant with them. Oh, he is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. And he is indeed the God who has blessed us so greatly that he gives us rest. Here and now, consummated in the future. And he is the God so amazing that he lets us in on reflecting his giving through our giving. And he lets us be involved in the work of the kingdom till one day he consummates his kingdom and we will sing forever of the rest that only he could provide and the giving that brought us there. And our testimony will not be our work, but his. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to respond to your word faithfully, honestly. Help us in these moments, Lord, as we feel a sense of conviction. We have things clarified for us. Help us not to distract ourselves. Try to put it behind us. Try to get on with what we so falsely label normalcy. When in reality, responding to you is what is normal. Lord, help us to honestly respond in these moments. Some putting their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. Some in repentance and faith. And some just simply crying out, I am needy. Things are not clear for me right now, but I want them to be. Help me to see this gracious God more faithfully. Lord, we'd love to help them do just that. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.